Bienvenue et welcome uh, in Montreal to this debate. Thanks for coming out on this rainy night. My name is Dietlin Stolle and I'm the director of the Center for the Study of Democratic Citizenship. And uh, I promise that this debate tonight will be even more interesting than the debate you saw last night. Um, Canada has to make a decision uh, whether and how it should reform its electoral system. And the Liberal government has suggested to revisit this issue, and that's why we are here. The idea for tonight is that we introduce four different electoral systems and discuss and debate their advantages and disadvantages. This event is organized and uh, sponsored by the Center for the Study of Democratic Citizenship, as well as co-sponsored co by the project Making Electoral Democracy Work. CPAC is a partner, as you can see the cameras here. We are right now streaming online, and the event will also be visible on CPAC in the following days. So those, we can also actually welcome people and students across the country from coast to coast. We have people now visiting, uh, sorry, visiting the website and listening here to us, so I welcome them as well. Bienvenue à toutes et à tous. Welcome to all of you for this Electoral Reform Forum. Uh, we also have a number of guests here tonight. Most of all, I would like to welcome uh, the Minister of Democratic Institutions, Minister Mariam Monsef. So she is here. Minister Monsef is uh, one of the youngest uh, ministers in the Trudeau uh, cabinet, representing the uh, riding of Peterborough, Cavata. Uh, uh, she has uh, very impressive experiences. Uh, she graduated in psychology. She worked uh, in humanitarian aid for refugee support in Iran and in Ontario. Uh, Minister Monsef has put together uh, a special committee uh, on electoral reform that is uh, about to issue its report to the House of Commons in a few months. And uh, she has been traveling the country to listen to people, what people like you all have to say and what they think about electoral reform. And so we also like to welcome her here at our event. And uh, so uh, I like to uh, welcome you here on stage. Uh, she likes to address the audience for a few minutes. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much for that introduction and uh, for hosting this event. Thank you for being here. I understand that the haves are out there, hopefully rocking it tonight. And uh, uh, while we're not able to watch them, because this is a very important matter, as Gabriel says, uh, our thoughts and our support is with them, right? So I appreciate being in a room with scientists and experts and academics. So I'm about to do a highly scientific, empirical-based uh, survey. Are you, are you ready for this? Okay, so voting is mandatory. It doesn't matter if you're 18 years or younger. It doesn't matter if you're an international student or a permanent resident. It doesn't matter if you're an expat who's lived abroad for more than five years. It doesn't matter if you have the right ID or not. If you're in this room, 
Simply by being in this room, you are eligible to vote. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you can raise your hand when I tell you to. You can uh, abstain from the vote. There's an opportunity to abstain. Are you ready? Highly scientific. There's some scientists in this room who are about to cringe a lot. Okay, by a show of hands, how many of you have made up your mind about what electoral system we ought to proceed with? How many of you think we should stay with the status quo? And how many of you have made up your mind about an alternate to first past the post? Raise your hands and hold them up and look around. So about a dozen people in this room have made up their minds. <laughs> so I am in the room of scientists. How many people have made up their mind about what we ought to do with electoral reform? What system, what system, what specific, I am in a room of scientists. I appreciate your precision. What system, so first past the post, proportional representation, ranked ballot, a hybrid system, you've come into this room and you've made up your mind, you know what we gotta do in terms of what system, what design we ought to move ahead with. Is the question clear? Okay. representation, there are many models. Yes. And you can believe in whatever model you want, madam. You, have you made up your mind? Excellent. So you're going to raise your hand. So how many of you have made up your mind? Raise your hands. Okay. So about a dozen people. Thank you. How many are in this room because they're simply curious and want to learn more? Raise your hands most people in this room. How many think this is a silly straw poll or they need more information or are abstaining from this vote? Raise your hands. Okay, there's like four of you. How many people think that voting should be mandatory? How many people think voting should not be mandatory? How many people are abstaining from this vote? Okay, I know there's different ways to enforce mandatory voting. You can provide incentives or you can provide uh, penalties. We're not talking about right now. How many of you made up your mind that voting should be mandatory? It should be the law. Raise your hands. Take a look around. Okay, about a fifth of the room. How many think voting should not be mandatory? Raise your hands. Okay, and how many people are abstaining for all the reasons they abstained last time? Okay, all right. Online voting. How many think that 2019 we ought to offer an additional option for Canadians to vote, and that additional option should be online. Raise your hands. Look around. Okay, how many think like, no, don't? Raise your hands. Oh, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> it's 50-50. How many are abstaining because of whatever reasons? Okay, so welcome to my life and the life of MPs uh, who ought to make decisions like this on a regular basis. I'm here because the best part of this job is connecting with young people. My new pet peeve is people saying young people are engaged, are not engaged. Young people don't care. Young people are apathetic. That's not what I've seen. I've just gone coast to coast to coast, and I know young people care. I know that you're the most powerful generation to have ever lived. Never before in the history of our species has a generation been as educated as you are, as privileged as you are, at your fingertips, you have the most powerful tool ever known to our species, and with it, you can connect to all the knowledge out there. All the people 
out there. The world is really your oyster. You care about social justice. You care about the environment. And you're already making a difference. So young people do care. So I'm thrilled that so many people in this room are young and young at heart. And I appreciate you being here. Here's the thing. My job as Minister for Democratic Institutions, I believe, is to restore the trust and confidence that Canadians have in their democratic institutions, to appreciate how fortunate we are to have what we have, and ultimately to increase participation. Not just increasing the number of people who vote, but increasing the number of people who put their names on the ballot and increasing the number of people who succeed once they get to these places. We are in a great position of privilege because very few places around the world have the opportunity to reform their democratic institutions in the absence of a crisis. Things are pretty stable right now. Things are peaceful. Things are moving along. Thanks to a healthy uh, public service, there was a smooth transition of power from one government to another. Life went on. Things are not that bad. But just because things aren't falling apart doesn't mean we can't be responsible and proactive about improving them. And that's what this is about. So I've gone to every province and territory, and I've been in rooms where it's been standing room only, and I've been in rooms where it's been intimate conversations in circles. I've gone to larger urban centers, and I've gone to isolated communities. I've reached out to those who aren't normally engaged in the political process. You're in this room because as millennials I met at a particular event, it reminded me, you are democracy geeks. You're into this stuff, and actually you are the exception and not the norm. You know where these events are. You are compelled to come to these events because it's fun and interesting for you. But for many, walking into a town hall in a hotel room, participating in a town hall is not something that they're comfortable with. They don't like having cameras in their faces, and they don't feel comfortable standing up at a mic. And so we have gone to them. As diverse as this country is, as diverse as its people are, the opinions on electoral reform are just as diverse. Fortunately, I'm not the only one out there talking to Canadians. There's a committee who's been working since June. They've had over 40 meetings. They've gone to every province and territory as well. They represent members of every single party, and they're doing really good work. MPs have been encouraged to host town halls because they understand their communities. They know how to reach out to those who aren't traditionally engaged. And I'm so proud that most MPs have. Now, this process here tonight is about to get seriously technical. And I know most of you are going to love that. Most of, our, of you are going to love FETP, STV, MMP. This is what you love. This is what gets you going. But... I will tell you that there is no perfect electoral system. Selecting the system to go with research shows, best practices from other democratic nations show that it's a highly subjective process. And because it's a highly subjective process and because it can be highly technical, the best way to go about electoral reform is through a principle-based approach. What do I mean by that? What are the values that we as Canadians cherish most in our democratic institutions. These values, I believe, are what bind us together.
the values that the committee's been asked to study, that I've been working with Canadians on, that I encourage you to include in your debate are the values or the principles of a more legitimate system, a more uh, accessible and inclusive system, a system that engages greater participation, a system that maintains but also enhances the integrity of the vote, and a system that maintains or enhances the connection to a local representative and the accountability measures that exist there. When we have a conversation about these principles or these values, we're able to transcend the level of democracy-geekiness, we're able to transcend socioeconomic status and all the other barriers like literacy that prevent many from participating in this conversation. And we're able to come together as a nation. As diverse as we are, these values bind us together. They allow us a common frame of reference for having a more inclusive and thoughtful conversation about our democratic institutions. If you're in this room, it's because somewhere, sometime in your life, something or someone sparked something in you to get you excited about politics, to get you excited and passionate about democracy, to inspire you to devote your life's work to it. And that is noble. And that is admirable. I want to know why that is. I want to know how we can plant that seed in more people in this country. So if you want to tell me what got you going and how you became a democracy geek, tweet at me, at Mariam Monsef. I sincerely want to know. I also want you to know that one of the common themes that comes up across the country is we need to work on the different systems that exist. We need to introduce a more reform measure. There is an appetite for change. But what I'm hearing across the country is people are concerned. People are concerned that even though young people are smart and engaged and really powerful, they're not voting in the numbers that they ought to be. People are concerned that the culture of civic engagement and participation that we could have is not there. People are concerned that Canadians are not as informed as they want to be, as they can be, about how their democratic institutions work. How does Parliament work? What does Senate do? What is the role of a cabinet? What do MPs really do? So in this room tonight, we're about to have a highly technical conversation, which I'm going to relish, as many of you are. But our challenge, as seriously privileged folks, because you're in this room, there are many barriers in your way, and you figured them out, and you moved around them, and you're in this room, so you are privileged. Some of you are current educators. Some of you are future educators. All of you have an influence on the people in your lives. How do we get more people having a voice, engaging in this conversation? How do we have a debate about what system to move forward with in a way that most Canadians, some who may not have finished high school, can engage in and be compelled to be a part of? That is our challenge. Now, before I step off, 
I want to know if there's anybody in this room who's ever run for anything. Have you ever put your name on a ballot? Maybe you're like uh, my colleague, Byrne, who actually used to go here, and she ran a campaign, and her name is Byrne, okay? So get this, her slogan was, feel the burn. <laughs> she eventually won. So whether it's for student council, whether you're an elder, whether municipal, provincial, or federal, if you have run or are currently serving in an elected capacity, could you please rise and be recognized? Okay, can we give him some love? Thank you. We could have the best electoral system out there, but if the best of the best do not step up and have the courage to put their name on the ballot, it's not going to be as good as it can be. I thank you so much for this opportunity. You've literally filled me with a lot of energy, and I already have a favorite audience member, and like most of you are not going to take this personally, but a special shout out to Maya, who's 10 years old and who's in this room right now. We're not just talking about improving the system for us. We're improving it for our kids and our grandkids so they can benefit from the same privileges and opportunities that these democratic institutions have afforded us. I wish you a civil but passionate debate tonight, and I look forward to the outcome. Have a great night. Thank you, Minister Monsef. It is always exciting to hear a politician talk about these important questions that we actually do research on. So we can actually answer many of the questions that you raised uh, tonight. And uh, Minister Monsef also got you warmed up already. Yeah, you already started voting with your hand. Now, what we will do tonight at the end of tonight's debate, we will vote and we will use uh, a any digital device that you have with you, uh, and you can log into our platform pigeonhole, uh, and uh, the Wi-Fi is available here, and for also everyone who is listening uh, through the CPAC live stream, you can also vote uh, via the same platform. So this is the exciting end of our evening, but I will accompany you through uh, the entire evening to get there to this vote that you will take on four electoral systems that we will introduce to you. So it works like this. Uh, we will start off with explaining the basics of these four electoral systems to you. And then we will have four presenters. Each of them will take one of these electoral systems and defend this system. And actually, before they made this decision to come here, they also had to agree on doing it uh, for any kind of system. So they are kind of the neutral researchers. So this is not a partisan event. It is a research-oriented event. We will discuss research-related findings as they come uh, up in relation to these four electoral systems that we are introducing. And we like you to participate, uh, not just through the vote, but also uh, you can ask questions on pigeonhole, 
during this entire debate uh, and uh, you can ask questions about anything you hear here in this room uh, to anyone uh, who is presenting to you and we will come to a question and answer section at the end of this debate where we will pick some of these questions uh, and there's one uh, technicality here that you can upvote questions. That means if you like a question that is on there uh, and you would ask it yourself, you don't have to ask it yourself. You just upvote the question that somebody else already put on there. You will see how it works once you log into Pigeonhole. Okay, so now I have the pleasure to introduce to you Professor Andre Blay. He is uh, the research chair of electoral democracy at the Université de Montréal. He is also the head of the project Making Electoral Democracy Work. So uh, he is working on electoral systems in most of his research. Andre Blay also presented to the special committee that uh, was formed. Uh, and I should also say here that he is the instigator of this event today. So it's his fault that we are here today. So it was his idea, and we also have to thank him for coming up with this idea. Andre Blay will introduce just how these four different systems work, just the technicalities of it in very easy language so that we uh, can follow along and know what the differences are between these systems. So Electro Systems 101, here we go. Andre Blay. Good evening, everyone. It's a real pleasure to see this crowd. Yes, this would be the most technical part of the presentation, but it would be fun. You'll see. <laughs> and easy. We have to present things very clearly. So tonight we're providing you with the opportunity to compare the merits and limits of four voting systems. The existing system, first past the post, the alternative vote, Small Districts Open List PR, SOP, we'll come to that in a minute, and finally, Mixed Member Proportional. We'll debate the merits and limits of these four systems, but first it's important to understand exactly how they work. This is my task, and my task is to explain it clearly, shortly, I have 10 minutes, to present four voting systems, and I'm sure that we'll all understand all the basic features of this system. Of course, there are some details we can talk about. So I will start with the existing first-past-the-post, and then I'll turn my attention to the three potential reforms to that system. I will explain how things will work if we were to adopt each of them. In doing so, I assume that we're keeping everything else. So we have now 338 districts, with one MP in each district, so we have 338 MPs. That, we keep that. And the number of MPs in each province also is the same. For instance, in Quebec, we have 78 members of parliament. So we keep that. Now we just see how different voting systems would, would work. So when uh, we come to explaining all of these systems, basically we have to address three questions, three simple questions very simple one. First, the districts. What would the districts look like? Second, how would I cast my vote, the vote? And thirdly, how, what does it take to get elected, or what we call I say, the counting of the votes? 
And so I will go through each of these four systems and see how they respond to each of these three questions. Let's start. Let's start with first past the post. First past the post is the system that we have. This is the existing system. This is the, the, the system that exists in Canada, the US, Britain, and India, among other countries. So it's very, very, very simple. We have one MP in each district. How do we vote? We vote for one candidate. And who is elected? The candidate with the most votes wins in each of these districts. This is all we need to know for first past the post. We've done first past the post in 30 seconds. We understand it. Now we can go to the next system. Before, after we look at the, uh, at the ballot, I think it's all important to see how, how it works. And it's, uh, we also ballot for each of these systems. And in these systems, there is a variety of options, of course, in Canada. And uh, of all these parties, I've come to the conclusion that the Kiwi party is clearly the, uh, the coolest of all. And I have a special affinity for Michael Davis, because you might not know Michael Davis, but Michael Davis is a very good tennis player. And I think that tennis is the best sport on the earth. Uh, I can trust people. People who play tennis have good taste, good judgment, and I'm willing to support them. So I'm supporting Michael Davis tonight from the Kiwi Party. And now we're switching to the second option, which, which is the alternative vote. By the way, these pictures are, represent some of the people who will now defend each of these systems. Uh, so the alternative vote, it's always districts vote and how it's counted. One MP per district, MP is member of parliament. It's exactly the same as first principles, nothing has changed. What, do, what does change is how people vote. Now, voters rank the candidate from first to last choice. We still have these six candidates. We'll go to the, now to the ballot. And the difference now is that I rank order these six candidates. So I still for Michael Davis, Kiwi Party. And uh, my students tell me that the Banana Party is a very good party, so I really want to support the Banana Party as well as a second choice and uh, so on for you know, three, four, and fifth, and sixth choice. So I rank order, so that's the only difference now. It's not only one candidate, now I rank order the candidates by preference. How, how votes counted? Now to get elected, it's not only having more votes than the other, it's really having a majority of support. So how it proceeds is that we first count the first choices, and if a candidate has a majority, more than 50% of the first choices, he or she is elected. If nobody has a majority, then we eliminate the weakest candidate and we add and we consider the second choice of those who supported that weakest candidate and they are added to the totals of remaining candidates. And we do that until one candidate has a majority of support among voters. So that's how the alternative vote works. Very simple, exactly the same districts, but people rank order and thirdly, the rule for getting elected is having a majority support. And you have here again the ballot. So we've done two, but two systems. We're moving to the third one, which is a very interesting one. It's a kind of small districts, open list PR systems, SOP. It's PR system, and there are many varieties of PR systems. By the way, most European countries have a PR systems. A lot of different ways of doing proportional representation, and we've selected one here tonight, which is small districts open list. 
So start with the districts. It's small districts. This means three, four, or five MPs per district to be elected. So three, four, or five. I will su suppose for the example here that it's really three, uh, four, I'm sorry. So I suppose it's really four, four candidates to be elected. So necessarily the districts would be larger. They will be four times larger. It's basically putting together four of the existing districts. So you have, you have districts which are four times larger than the one that we have now. So that's, that's the first difference. And then each of the parties, so there are four persons to be elected. So all of the six parties each present four candidates because they hope that all their candidates will be elected. So we have six parties, four candidates. And how do we vote? That's the ballot here. That's the ballot for a SOP, so for proportional with, with open list system. And here, basically, what you have to decide is whether you use the upper part of the, of the ballot or the lower part. If you don't have any preferences among the candidates, you just have a preference for a party, you go to the upper part and you, you vote for one of the parties. But if you have preferences among the candidates, then you go and support a candidate. In this case, I, have a, you know, I would really like Eva Gilmore for, still for the Kiwi Party, so I vote for Eva Gilmore from the, from, the, from the Kiwi Party. And by the way, by doing so, I'm voting for her, but I'm also voting for her party, the Kiwi Party. We'll see that her vote will count in, 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 in some sense twice. So that's how it works. I vote for one candidate for, from one party. And there are four persons to be elected in that district. How do we count the vote? Relatively simple. We have to determine number of seats for each party. Typically, so we have to, so four persons to be elected, and we have to determine how many seats go, go to which party. We apply a technical formula, which I will spare in here, and basically the number of seats depend on how many votes you have. And typically, a, a party would get two seats. Uh, the first party with the most votes would get two seats, and the other two parties one seat each. And a party would need at least about 50% of the votes to get one seat. So we determine how many, how many seats each party gets. Suppose the Kiwi party gets one seat, so we know that the, the party has, has a right to having one seat. Then we decide which of the Candidate, the four candidates of the Kiwi Party would get elected, and we consider all the personal votes of the candidate, and the candidate with the most votes gets elected. So that's the way uh, uh, the uh, small districts open list PR works. Uh, and basically, this means that you have different parties, you still have four persons elected coming from different parties in your riding, a larger riding with four MPs from different parties. Mixed member proportional, so it would be a bit longer. Okay. Now to describe the last option, there are many types of, of mixed member proportional. We're presenting here a, 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 a very specific one. And to describe it, I will use the example of Montreal Island. On Montreal Island right now, there are 18 MPs who are elected. There are 18 districts, with in each district one person to be elected. Under MMP, there will still be 18 members in total, but 12 of these members will be elected in local districts like now, and six will be elected 
at the regional level, region-wide. So that's the difference now. There will be two types of districts. There is the, the regional districts and there are the 12 local districts with a total of 18 members to be elected. Now the votes, two votes this time, and that's the ballot, two ballots. The one on the left with the first vote is, is the first past the post ballot, and the other one is the proportional uh, list ballot. So in this case, I vote for Marie Tremblay from the Cherry Party in my first vote. This is the, my vote in the local district. And I vote on, for the, uh, on, on the second vote, which is at the regional level. In this case, I vote for uh, Elva Gilmore. And I vote at the same time for the Kiwi Party. So that's my second vote. Now let's see how we count. How we count this? We start with the local districts. There are 12 of them. And it's very easy. It's first past the post. The candidate with the most votes in each district is elected in, the, in that local district. So that's 12 of them. We've got now six more to elect. And we consider the second votes, the, 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 the list votes in, in, at the regional level, and we determine how many seats in total each party should obtain. For instance, if my party, the Kiwi Party, has 10% of the second vote, that party should have two seats in total, because there are 18 in total. 10% of 18 is about two. So that party should have two seats in total. Now we look at how many seats that party has won in the local districts. If that party has won one seat, then the implication is that the party will have another seat at the regional level. So the, the, the way the systems works is that most of the local districts, the 12 local districts, are won by the bigger parties, and most of the compensatory seats region-wide go to the smaller parties. So this is why it is called also mixed compensatory. To take into account as well is that usually it would take about 5% of the vote for a party to get elected in this system. The parties with less than 5% are unlikely to get, to get any seat. And in that system, there would be about 20 regions in Canada as a whole. There would be, let's say, five in Quebec. There would be one from the old Montreal Island. Usually, the number of, of uh, members to be elected in each region would be between 10 and 20, with some exceptions clearly for the territories, for instance, and for the small provinces. So that's, that's the way how it would exist. So it's really a combination, in this case, of first past the post at the local level, and compensatory PR at the regional level. So these are the four voting systems that we will be debating tonight. And uh, I guess that if you have, have any questions, by the way, at the end, I will be uh, pleased to answer them. And now I think it's the time to go real, to listen to the arguments for each of these four systems. Thank you. Okay, so now it's debate time, and the debate comes in three rounds. So the first round, we have each presenter here presenting their electoral system in 12 minutes. So they all have 12 minutes. Then they will debate with each other, and then we will take your questions. For this third part, 
we would like your questions. Are the questions coming in? We have a team here that is curating the questions. So uh, we are putting them on the platform so you can see them, you can upvote them. And for those who don't have a cell phone or laptop with them, we even have tablets. Can the volunteers with the black T-shirts with our wonderful center logo please hold up their tablets so you can maybe walk around a little bit and see whether someone would need a tablet for putting in another question. So now it's time for round one of our debate. And we start uh, with uh, Peter Lowen. Peter Lowen is uh, a professor uh, in political science and the director of the School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Toronto. He came to us today from Princeton. Peter will be arguing in favor of the first-past-the-post system, so the system that we currently have in Canada. Peter, it's Thanks. on you. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, and I'll say, uh, uh, of course, a, a very large and sincere thank you to Dietland and to Andre for having us, um, and, uh, uh, and a very heartfelt thanks to uh, Minister Monsef for, uh, for joining us tonight. I think um, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, a minister, whatever their age or, or, or uh, station, who's been given a, uh, a more complicated file, and I think she's been handling it with a lot of aplomb, um, so I think we're all uh, in her debt on that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start with the confession, which is that uh, I'm a person, and I've written this publicly, that if I had lived in Ontario in 2007, I would have voted for a mixed-member proportional system. And when I lived in British Columbia in 2009, um, I did, in fact, vote for STV. So I'm a person who has, uh, on at least one occasion, revealed my preference for electoral reform. Uh, and on another occasion, I would have, I would have voted for that. I've gone through a, a transformation in my thinking. Uh, the source of this is that I've come to have the belief that uh, what is most important is the maintenance of the democratic selection of leaders, that democracy is precious, and that what we should do is not change anything until fundamental until it's fundamentally broken. That happens to be my belief. It's a very conservative Burkean belief. But what it recommends to me is that in our own country, we ought to maintain first-past-the-post. Um, in Germany, they ought to maintain MMP. In the Netherlands, they ought to maintain PR, just as they have um, after their most recent deliberations on that. That's a position that I come from. But that's not an empirical position. That's a normative one. So I want to give you some normative basis for why I believe what I believe at this point about why we ought to maintain, uh, to retain, indeed, our first-past-the-post system. I know it's difficult. Um, it's a bit like um, trying to... Uh, uh, persuade someone that, that all the shiny things that are just over the horizon um, may not be as shiny as they, as they look and that the, the dull and broken things we have around us are in fact sufficient, but it's a task that I'm happy to do uh, this evening. So what I want to do is essentially five things. I want to make an argument about what we want in electoral systems and I want to make an argument that our system does that fairly well. I want to talk about uh, what I call the problem of disproportionality. So I want to take that issue head on. I want to talk about what we'll get from electoral reform should we adopt it. Um, I want to talk about what the potential, in terms of benefits, I want to talk about what I think the downsides are. And I want to conclude by making an argument about the, the fine functioning of Canadian democracy. So let me just start uh, and give you a sense of what values matter to me uh, in a democracy. They're, they're, they're quite basic. I want to live in a country where we have democratic selection of leaders, that is where people on a regular basis are invited to pass judgment on who ought to lead them or rule them. I want those individuals to be responsive to public preferences. So uh, I want them, when citizens want something, if it is also in their interest, to pursue those public policies. And I want those politicians to be accountable for the decisions that they've made. 
And for me, those are basic criteria. I don't adopt a criteria like saying there has to be a perfect match between the votes that a party gets and the seats that it receives, because I don't see that as necessary to fulfill those three things, that there would be re regular elections, that there would be responsiveness, that there would be accountability. Quite the contrary, actually, in some cases. So this is what I wish for in a democracy. And I think it is actually the case that a first-past-the-post system allows, because it typically generates single-party governments, allows, rather optimally, for responsiveness to public opinion and public preferences, and it allows for accountability. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Trudeau government was elected with a majority on somewhere on the order of 39 or 40 percent, and we may well find that objectionable, that they had such a disproportionate amount. But what I've heard from many members of that party, from many members of Parliament, from the NDP, is that Canadians are overwhelmingly in support of electoral reform. Indeed, 65 percent of them voted for parties which advocated reform. And I've heard uh, that public opinion polls suggest that the government ought to continue with its reform efforts. The government doesn't need 50 or 55 or 60 percent of the vote to pursue that policy that citizens want. It needs only the chance to govern for a period of time and to make choices that are responsive to citizens. Similarly, the government might look and say, despite the fact that we only got 40 percent of the vote, it is the case that a majority of Canadians in public opinion polls want an extension of the Canada Pension Plan, uh, uh, an augmentation of it, and they can respond sufficiently. And we can know that they've responded to it because we can watch what that government does out in the open when it passes policies as its own party. And when election time comes, the government can square up to the promises it kept or it didn't keep, and voters can make a decision about whether they wish to retain that party. So I see the characteristics that I want in a democracy within our, within our system. I see them uh, sometimes in spades. There is a problem of disproportionality. I, don't hope, I hope we don't talk about um, this notion of false majorities. I always find it funny that those who lecture people and there's quite a bit of this, and they say, you know, we don't elect our prime minister directly. You know, we actually elect MPs, and then MPs go to Ottawa, and they, they choose prime ministers. Are the same people who often tell us, oh, there's a false majority, because somehow uh, 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 the party that sent the most MPs didn't get a majority of the vote, but it won a majority of the seats. If that's the relevant metric for how we select our government, there's not false majorities. But there's disproportionality. Parties that get 40% of the seats often get somewhere on 100% of the power. That's something like the bump under the rug, as I think my colleague Joe Heath says. But the bump is always there somewhere. So here's my question to you. What's more desirable normatively? And let's address this head-on maybe in the debate portion. That a party that has 40% of the vote would take 100% of the power and would then uh, move into the broad middle and pursue policies that are desirable for 60% of people maybe? Is that more desirable or, or is it more desirable that we would be in a system of coalition government where one or two small parties that round out a coalition, each of them perhaps earning the vote of just one in 20 people, 5% exercise something like 10% of power in a cabinet, or 15%. Why is that disproportionality acceptable? And why is it acceptable on portfolios where they are almost by definition extreme and outside of the mainstream in terms of opinion? Why is that, why is that an acceptable disproportionality? We need an answer for that because that's the relevant trade-off, okay? We're not moving to a system, as some people have suggested, where 40% of the vote will now get you 40% of the power. No, no, no. 40% of the vote plus a few more votes will give you the cabinet. And from there, people with 50, 51, 52% of the, of the vote can have 100% of the power. So I want to know what disproportionality is better. Maybe we can talk about it. 
I'll tell you, uh, this is my third point, that the reason why I've come to be skeptical of reform is because I don't believe that we know what will happen when reform occurs. So I think the standard way that we go about this, thank you, that we go about this is we do cross-national regressions. I don't want to get too technical, but we compare all the countries in the world that have PR with all the countries that have something else. And then we look often with quite a bit of selection, convenient selection of variables, what things are different in PR countries and non-PR countries. I don't believe estimates like this anymore. I don't think these types of estimates are scientific. I think that maybe the best we can do is look at a country which has changed its electoral system, which looks like our own in some ways, and ask what happened. I think New Zealand provides good evidence of what's occurred when they went uh, from a first-past-the-post system to MMP. And I think it is basically a mixed bag. There's not a lot of negative in the New Zealand case, but there's not a ton of positive. So we hear that turnout will be higher in proportional systems. It's not the case in New Zealand. Turnout has continued to decline. It's not clear to me when I look at the curve that even, it was, even that it was arrested or that it floored out under PR. I don't see that. There's a claim that citizens will be more satisfied with democracy, that they'll be more trusting of government. There is evidence that citizens have become more trusting of government in New Zealand. There is no evidence, as far as I can tell, from the New Zealand election study that citizens became more satisfied with their democracy. Indeed, satisfaction was highest in the election before MMP, and it's been lower in every election since. It is the case that New Zealand, after it moved to MMP, elected more women and it elected more visible minorities and more Maori. And that's very much to its credit. What was the bonus or the margin for women elected to the New Zealand Parliament? About 5%. 5% more women. Yesterday, our MPs voted down a piece of legislation that would have punished parties financially for not running gender-balanced slates. I think that legislation would have got us a lot more than five points, and it would have done it very quickly without changing a fundamental institution. And it is the case that, uh, as far as I can tell, that policymaking in New Zealand has not become the province of large numbers of parties having input. Indeed, the norm seems to be one large party, sometimes in a coalition, but most often with a supply arrangement with one or two or three other parties who have cabinet ministers outside of cabinet. And those parties really continue with the policies they wish to put in place um, with some uh, SOPs, I can't use the word SOP now, with some uh, small tokens and favors to uh, the parties who are uh, uh, supporting them. I don't see it as a revolutionary change. I don't see it, by the way, as something entirely negative, by the way, but I don't see a benefit that justifies a fundamental reform. There is downside to electoral reform. I want to make a very strong point here, and maybe this is hyperbolic, but I shall make it. I've heard it often said that Canada is not Italy and Canada is not Israel, that we're not a country that will somehow um, be incredibly fragmented if we are uh, given over to a proportional representation system. I can only take that to mean that people don't mean that Canada is like, uh, like uh, uh, Italy, a highly regionalized economy where economies exist in zero-sum with each other, where it has large amounts of ethnic groups who people like the French and the English and the Irish who for the Scottish, who for a long time couldn't find common cause or common purpose and saw each other as unfit for public life. They can't mean that we're a country that's had major issues of linguistic division, overlaid with issues of religion, overlaid with issues of education. They can't mean all those things, because we have had all those things. Those have all been features of our country. And yet, it is the case that we've somehow made do. Yes, we have regional parties who spring up from time to time. The Reform Party is an example. If you're not familiar with them, they're no longer around because they had national ambitions and they had to put some water in their wine and decide that they would become a national party. But I worry that the fundamental divisions in our society, especially the regional ones, will be exacerbated 
very much if we have a proportional representation system, because parties which aspire to power will no longer have to try and have a national reach. Instead, they'll simply try and have a regional power base, which they'll then leverage for cabinet positions and for power. And that power will often be disproportionate on the order of the disproportionality that people object to uh, in our current system. I think it is just an empirical fact that if we look at the 10 most diverse countries with the most foreign-born people in the world, Canada ranks among those. It is a fact that in those countries that have PR systems, we see a greater share of vote for far-right parties and we see a greater share of vote for a uh, greater share of seats for parties of the far right who wish to end legal and Ill illegal immigration. I don't know if that's 100% probability in Canada. I don't want to entertain the possibility. Finally, I can speak more of downsides later because I'm a very contrarian person, but finally, um, I want to just say that our democracy, I think, works well. It is the case in 26 of the last 33 elections that the party that won in the most regions in our country formed government. It is the case that we score well on international indices of governance, of corruption, and it is the case that when we've had problems in our democracy, for example, the dominance of large donors uh, against our parties in the 80s and the 90s, we've come up with legislative reforms that could address those deficits in our democracy. So what I would say is, is our democracy perfect? No. Are there things we should change? Yes. But we ought to get serious about it, and we ought to get serious about making small incremental changes without making a fundamental change of a central institution. Thank you very much. Tonight is Marc-André Baudet. Marc-André is a professor at the Université de Montréal. No. Uh, sorry, at the Université de Laval. You did your PhD. No. No. <laughs> no, I was one of your students. Well, Marc-André and I met at University of Montreal. <laughs> okay, I mixed it up. Anyway, he's at Laval. And, uh, Marc-André is for our second electoral system tonight, which is the alternative vote. Welcome, Alors, vous ici ce soir. Uh, Thank you for being here tonight. Clearly, André cannot explain PR system uh, very efficiently, so I'll try to compensate by cutting my time. Another good uh, case in favor of simpler system like uh, first past the post or alternative vote. My second comment will be that um, I want to state I agree with what Peter Lowen just said, maybe 99% of it. But my argument here is actually there's a way to just improve the system incrementally, make a small change that will uh, improve uh, the system in general without losing some of the most important benefits of our current system. I also want to say that alternative vote is not perfect for sure. Uh, I think it's, it's better than proportional systems in a lot of ways. I would also like to say that um, personally, uh, when I did the research on the EV, um, I concluded that the values that are maximized in an alternative vote system are accountability to some extent, so it keeps in line with first past the post, but also it increases the efficacy of a lot of voters because their votes uh, count in a, in a more uh, tangible way. Um, I also uh, would like to uh, divide my presentation in four parts. I will first talk about what would not change uh, relative to the current system, to the first past the post. Then I will say a few words about what will change uh, for the better with the new system. 
I will make an argument about why it's the best alternative to what we have right now. And finally, I will uh, address three myths that are quite common, uh, common in the media and in discussions with uh, colleagues, uh, friends, and family. But first of all, what will not change with the current system? Well, first, there will still be local representatives, the same numbers, the same uh, size of districts probably, which is, I think, a good thing, since uh, local representation matters to a lot of people, especially for uh, in a Canada that is more diverse, and uh, I can tell from personal experience, friends of mine, but also uh, in a more systematic way, that uh, Canadians that, um, that, uh, that were born in, in other countries and had some issues with Immigration Canada, for example, uh, had a lot of support from the MPs in a lot of cases. So having access to someone in a position of power at a local level is quite important. Secondly, the number of districts in an alternative old system would remain the same, or could remain the same, which is uh, good in the case we are interested in, since the logistics are quite easy. So if we want to make a reform before the next election, I think that's the only option on the table. It is quite easy for Elections Canada to make the necessary changes to make it possible for the next fed, uh, general election. Third, uh, the third point here that things that would not change is that the constitutional obligation in terms of representation of regions and provinces wouldn't be jeopardized. Uh, we would be in the same uh, paradigm, if you want, as the current system. Uh, voters could still want uh, for a single candidate if they prefer to. Actually, in the past, we have cases in uh, provincial uh, elections in Canada where voters were allowed in alternative vote system to select only one candidate. So those who are quite happy with the current system and want to support only one candidate or one party could still do it in an alternative vote. But it would increase uh, the, the opportunity for those who are interested in showing preferences for more than one party. So in that sense, you protect the, or you, you're in, you, you make sure the preferences of those who like the current system are protected, and you give additional uh, power to those who want more. And a small point, but still one that matters, public funding for candidates could remain the same with some uh, tweaks at the margins, which is also, I think, quite important. What would change relative to the current system, though? Well, first of all, it would reduce what we call the mechanical effect of uh, our system or the disproportionality, as Peter Lorin has said. Research shows that uh, in an alternative vote system, small parties are still uh, in a difficult position to, to have the number of seats that reflects their support. However, parties that are doing better, middle size, if you want, manage to, in general, to perform better or to increase their, uh, their representation in the House of Commons or in the legislature. Uh, that means that we, was usually, we, we would usually end up with, uh, if not coalition government, at least minority government for sure, but we would still remain, uh, maintain a system where the main parties are in a good position. Bigger parties would still benefit uh, from a bonus in an alternative vote system, though that bonus would be probably uh, a bit smaller. There would be changes and reduction of what we usually call uh, strategic voting in the sense that tactical voting would still exist, particularly for those who have preferences for more than one party, so the orders would matter. But the strategic voting that is quite common uh, to some extent in our system would be reduced. Uh, so we would actually improve the quality of the signal coming from uh, voters um, without, um, uh, without eliminating the, the impact of strategic voting to some extent. Another aspect would be that it creates incentives for parties to behave differently. It would increase the, the incentives for parties to actually try to create bridges with other parties. Uh, 
This is what happened in Australia, for example, but in other cases also, where a party needs the support from not only their supporters, but also voters who like other parties. They can even have uh, deals before and during the campaign saying, put my party first, but put that second party second, and then we'll improve our representation in general. It would pacify, um, potentially, our electoral discourse without uh, destroying the, the general dynamics of our political cultures. These bridge parties would be rewarded, and research tends to show that. You can even imagine local deals, where parties would have different deals in different districts, depending on the different uh, strengths of parties. So you improve the capacity of parties to cooperate with one another and to try to create bridges with other parties and other voters. Why is it the best alternative to the current system, the first-past-the-poll system? Well, I think the, the, the great thing about an alternative vote system is that it keeps the most positive characteristic of the current system, local representation, bonus for bigger parties, accountability, but it gets rid of the most negative or the most problematic ones, massive mechanical effects, um, uh, votes that are spoiled because uh, support for small parties uh, doesn't count at the end. It also avoids the numerous, the very numerous weaknesses of PR systems, an accountability, a loss of local representative, party leadership control over a list, fragmentation of the party system. It has the potential to pacify again to a certain extent the electoral campaign by creating incentives for bridging and for um, uh, cooperation between parties. Empirically, this is not always the case, but still the potential is there. Finally, even though Peter don't like the term, the likelihood of a false or of a weak majorities um, uh, become neglig negligible in the sense that you wouldn't have cases where in Quebec, for example, in 98, a party receives more votes but less seats, so that's a false majority, and also it would reduce the distance between uh, support uh, for the winning party and the number of seats it receives. In conclusion, I want to talk about three myths that are quite common in the public discourse and in the media. First of all, a lot of uh, those, especially uh, conservative uh, pundits, would say that uh, in the alternative vote system, the Liberal Party of Canada would remain in power forever. Well, I think that we don't know, because the dynamics would change so much that it's possible that the Liberals would end up in the middle of a fight between a left-wing party and a right-wing party. It's actually quite possible that the Liberal Party would become either the winner in certain elections when they're very popular, or the kingmakers. The second choices of those who would prefer the Liberals as their first option would decide if the NDP or the Conservatives would win an election. So in that sense, a simple translation of the current dynamics into a new system is simply wrong. Second point, uh, we, we hear quite often that small parties would still be in a, in a weak position. So those who prefer small parties would not benefit from, uh, from, uh, from the support they deserve. Well, that's true for very small and marginal parties for sure but not for parties who are at a level that is quite high, but not enough to be uh, competitive for power. Think of the CAQ in Quebec, for example, even Quebec Solidaire, uh, the NDP in Ontario, and on the federal level in some occasions. And finally, some people say that voters are incapable of mastering such a system. Well, that's not true. That's not empirically, and that's not historically true, because the system has been used at the provincial level in Canada until the 1950s in Western Canada with some success. And some sort of ranked ballot system have been used in, in different countries for more than a century. Think of Ireland, for example, that have used a system for a very long time. And even though I know Irish people are very proud of where they're from and their country, I don't think they would say that they're clever voters than in Canada. 
So to that extent, I think a small change to the current system uh, in favor of an alternative vote would improve a lot of the things that we don't like about our political life in Canada without getting rid of all the nice things that have made Canada such a stable democracy over the last 150 years. Thank you very much. And uh, Laura Stevenson is our third debater. She is a professor of political science at the University of Western Ontario. And she will be debating one of the proportional systems, one version of it, which she calls the small district open list proportional representation system. You're welcome, Laura. And <laughs> Thank you. It's lovely to be here tonight and to be in a room of demo geeks. I have never heard of that before. It's a great term. I hope that all my students are watching so that they can also do that. Um, and I'd like to echo the minister's comments about the, um, the youth um, and the engagement with this topic because it is, it's really inspiring to see and, and uh, it's great to be able to, to speak to people tonight. Now I will say that the one benefit of presenting this system, and as you probably already know, there's so many variants of PR, is that I got, got to make it up. Um, not that it doesn't exist because it, there's all sorts of different types out there, but I got to choose the details that I thought were the best. So similar to Peter, I haven't always um, voiced um, support of PR systems, but in looking a little bit more at the details, I was able to come up with a system that I thought really does represent the qualities and the aspirations of Canadians. That being said, I think the the best way to begin, of course, is to think about why are we discussing electoral reform at all? And as others have said, right, we have no imminent threat to Canadian democracy. Our, our governments are working well. Our current system has produced effective governments and oppositions throughout its history. And this hasn't always been the case in first-past-the-post systems, and our provinces are good examples of that. So in the Maritimes, for example, you've got small legislatures and first-past-the-post, and if there's an electoral sweep, it's often very difficult to have effective opposition, and this is a problem. And this is also why PEI is revisiting the issue again uh, this November. In BC and Quebec, they went down the road to look at electoral reform because they had a wrong winner election. So they had an, a, a, an outcome where the party that won the most seats and formed the government had less of the popular vote than the runner-up. This obviously angered people, and that's where they went down that road. Now, Canada as a whole, the federal election, hasn't had a wrong winner election since the 1979 uh, minority government. And so our outcomes have reflected, for the most part, the popular vote, but not proportionately. And that's, of course, something that we've been hearing about a lot from uh, citizens now, but it's also something that's been coming up time and time and time again over the past several elections. This isn't something that's new, right? It's not a new call. So even though Canadian democracy really isn't in crisis, I'm not going to suggest that we stay with the status quo. I'm going to suggest that we look to a new system that can help us do even better, to have an even better democracy. Um, Canadians have shown that they feel unrepresented when their votes don't make a difference for the election outcome. And we know that our current system does privilege the winning party and it disadvantages the smaller parties especially. These tensions are real and we know that several parties have recognized this and have come out in support of it. So it's a 
we have an opportunity right now for Canada to choose a system that is actually going to make our democracy better. It's a great opportunity. We don't always get it, and so I think we should take it. Of course, I'm not quite so radical. I do not believe in throwing babies out with bathwater. Therefore, I think that we should not completely alter how we experience government, but we need to have some change that is real and that is effective. So the system that I am going to be speaking in favor of tonight is one that improves the proportionality of our election outcomes without completely overhauling how we understand politics. So that is the SOP system. And Deetland and I had an exchange this morning. She said, Laura, where is this system? I can't find it anywhere. I said, well, that's because it's not anywhere, um, because it's known as a variant of list PR. And that's what I'm going to propose for you today is a version of it that I think is best for Canada. And why do I think it's best? Because it's moderate proportionality, but it has some clear benefits. And I'm going to outline those for you right now. So first, about the proportionality aspect of it. Number one, it is more proportional. Okay? It will create more proportional outcomes. And that is what I have always been hearing, and I think that's what the media is telling us and the polls are telling us, that Canadians do, in fact, want more proportionality. They want more voices in Parliament in greater proportion to the vote, and that's what would happen under an SOP system. So it is real, and it would be effective change. On the other hand, Perfectly proportional systems have some dangers. Usually the biggest danger would come in the form of small parties that people are concerned about taking power, and some of the previous speakers have already spoken about that. So there's where the small district size, um, Professor Blay talked about four seats, we're talking about four, uh, three to five seats per district, is really the key. Uh, because if you have a highly proportional system, then there's incentives there for small parties to form because they will be able to win seats. Okay? But when you restrict the number of uh, seats in a district, then those incentives are a lot uh, smaller. So we have a unique system here in Canada because by most of the literature, we should have only two parties. We have a first-past-the-post system, and somehow we have managed to support far more parties um, throughout our history. Right now, we have these four national parties, including the Green Party, that campaign and run candidates across the country. And then we have the Bloc Québécois, a major player here in Quebec only, that also is a very clear um, objective. Now, if Canada was to adopt an electoral system that would be favorable to small parties, we might see a lot of single-issue or even smaller regional parties really becoming viable contenders for office. Now, we know, if you've ever looked, just for the heck of it, and go to Elections Canada and see how many parties are actually registered. And you might be surprised at how many of them. If our electoral system were to go too far towards proportionality, we might see the Pirate Party of Canada, the Marijuana Party, or the Rhinoceros Party, a favorite of young children when you explain electoral systems, actually being able to win seats. So we have to think, is this a good thing for Canada or not? Well, scholars of Canadian politics and parties, and in fact, our previous speakers, have said that one of the important roles that our parties have done is really unified our country. We need to think about this very carefully. Due to the size and heterogeneity of our country, we have diverse provinces and different political cultures. And one could imagine that if there are incentives for small parties, you could see the Liberal Party splintering. The Liberals in the West, different from the Liberals in Ontario. One could even imagine the Conservative Party splitting up, of course. So more regional parties could really threaten the unity of our country. Constraining the number of political parties is also very important because of our own political culture. 
Uh, Canadians are not accustomed to coalition governments. We have had minority governments when other countries might have sought coalitions. So if we limit the number of parties that would win seats, then we will end up with an electoral landscape that's not all that different from what we're used to. Right? We are used to having minority governments. Now, coalition parties could form under SLP, but if they do, there would be fewer small parties to complicate matters, right? And if the concern is that a small party might hold the balance of power and extract specific policy promises, those tiny, small, radical parties wouldn't be there because they wouldn't be winning the seats. And the key for this is the natural threshold of votes per seats that an SLP system would create. They'd need 12 to 18 percent by my calculations, or maybe one in seven voters support in order to get a seat. This doesn't, this isn't simple to do, right? This is a good amount of support. So it's going to limit the incentive to have uh, small parties. Okay, that's the proportionality aspect of it. Now let's talk about these additional benefits that made me like this system. There's three main ones, one for constituents, one about parties, and one about diversity. About the constituents, well, there, here's the thing with an open list. It means that candidates from the same party are competing against each other for votes. What does this mean for constituents? Well, it likely means a lot more campaigning and a lot more effort from candidates who are going to try and differentiate themselves from their uh, co-partisans. Simply, party campaigning would not be enough to create this diversity. Right? So if you want someone to check the box beside your name, you have to make sure that that person knows who you are and what you stand for. So there would be greater campaigning under SOP. Greater campaigning means greater mobilization, can mean greater turnout, and greater information about elections. These are all goods for the Canadian public. They're good things. Beyond that, after the election occurs, there's an incentive for the MPs to continue serving their constituencies and differentiating themselves so that they continue to have that basis. As far as I can tell, these are good things, right, that we would want. So I think that's a good part. Second thing is about parties. So the open list feature of an SOP system means that parties aren't going to have complete control over who gets office. Right? Now, they are still going to have a, a big role. They have a big role in structuring our politics and our, certainly our governance, and they would have a role in terms of getting people on the list. But once they have identified people that they feel are able to um, carry their banner, they would not have the power over who gets elected. That would be what voters have. So power would go to voters and a little bit away from the parties. And I think this is a good thing. We have very strong parties. I don't think it's a bad thing if we see MPs differentiating themselves a little bit and pushing forward. The final thing I'm going to talk about is a benefit of diversity. Okay. Here my argument is not so much about the mechanics of an electoral system because it's really all about who the candidates are. My argument is about two things, my trust in Canadians and my trust in the media. Truth of the matter is, if you see a list of candidates, three to five names, I cannot imagine any party putting forward five white men on that list and not paying a price for it. Why? Because I think voters are well aware of this, and I think the media is well aware of this, and the media would report on it. So this wouldn't be something that could just slip off the radar without being something that people would have to really consider. And this is important, right? We know that there are lots of really great male candidates out there, and we know there are lots of really great female invisible minority candidates as well. So if the parties aren't going to do it on their own, we are going to have the media and the public holding them accountable because it's very visible for them.
Um, I also know from research that vote women are not disadvantaged by voters. You know, voters do not not vote for women. That seems to be a, it's a myth that's out there. In fact, some research that I have conducted shows that people are more likely to vote for women as an electoral system becomes more open and they're allowed to have those personal votes. So I believe the same will hold for visible minorities. People can make those choices. Again, it's the power of the voters and it would lead to a more diverse parliament. So, all in all, small district, open list, PR, it's the best direction for Canada to go. It's a moderate change towards greater proportionality, but it will also avoid some of the major concerns about uh, proportional systems, that is too many parties, while also having real benefits for constituents, for diversity, etc. So, let's go for it. Thanks. Thank you, Laura. And we are now coming to our last... We are now coming to our last presentation. And our last presentation is by Sven Oliver Proksch. He is a professor of political science at McGill University. And he will be talking about our second option for a proportional system, which is the mixed member proportional system, MMP. Thank you very much and good evening. Um, I'm here to argue for the introduction of a mixed member proportional representation system in Canada. And I'm a political scientist who is uh, intrinsically interested in, in exploring the effects of electoral systems on functioning of parliaments and on governments, but also someone who has actually voted in a mixed member proportional representation system for, for my entire life was uh, in Germany. And so I have sort of a personal experience with, with the system as well as a, um, an interest as, an, as a researcher. And I think make, make the case that MMP would be a very good alternative for Canada, a tailor-made uh, mixed-member proportional system, not, not the German version, um, but the one that Andre Blais sketched out in his presentation. And I'd like to start um, my um, argument with, that, with the observation that Canada is a mature democracy. It's a mature democracy, and I think I, I agree with all the, the previous uh, speakers that um, we have to sort of keep that in mind when, when making a change. But it's also a system that's a little bit unusual on a global scale, in particular when we compare it with other established democracies, in the sense that it's using an electoral system in a country that already has multiple political parties and more political parties than in other Westminster-style democracies. And as a result, there is the unusual effect of disproportionality. Um, that's quite stark here. So I'd like to make the case that if we switch to an MMP system, it would actually preserve what Canadians know and what they like. Right? So it would not be a, a, a drastic change in that sense. There will be a component where single-member districts will continue to exist. They will be slightly larger than, than now. But voters know that the candidate with the most votes will, will get that seat. And they are able to hold that candidate accountable come election time, the next time around. Right? So um, somebody who would like to reward or punish their individual MP can actually do that in those single-member district elections. But it adds a component that Canadians appear to want, if we believe the opinion polls, and that is that Canadians want a more representative composition of Parliament. And MMP will exactly achieve that. So it will keep the single-member districts, but it will have this compensatory mechanism through regions that will allow for a more proportional representation of um, parties in Parliament, meaning that the, vote share, the seat shares of parties will um, be more proportional to the vote shares that those parties 
uh, will have. I'd like to uh, note here, you see it from these sample ballots, right? so each voter will have sort of two votes, uh, one in the single-member districts here on the left and on the right for either a party, so you endorse sort of the, the candidates that the party have um, presented, or you pick a particular candidate um, with, a, with the open list version from a, from a party here in this uh, instance, uh, Andre Blais uh, really likes uh, Eva Gilmore from the Kiwi Party. Um, what that means here is that you have a system and it's really, that's the tailor-made component of MMP, that achieves full accountability of legislators, right? So one of the critiques and one of the, the arguments against um, a proportional system is that, yeah, parties get all the power to nominate candidates, and it's very difficult now to hold individual legislators accountable. That's not the case here. So come election time, um, you can actually say, I really liked my uh, single-member district candidate. Maybe it was Marie Tremblay, so I'm going to cast a vote again for, for her. And for the party... Right? Maybe there is a minister on that um, party list that's presented to you, and maybe you really dislike that particular minister. So you can choose another candidate for, for on, that, on that party ticket, or you can endorse that minister if you think that a minister, for example, achieved electoral reform in Canada, and you can uh, reward uh, her that way. So it's, it's full accountability here, uh, and I think that's important. It's not that parties have the, the – they do present the initial list, and I think that's where Laura mentioned, that's where, for example, the benefits of more women in Parliament come in, because those lists um, tend to include more women in PR systems, and that's where the benefits arise. But voters have the ultimate uh, final choice in, in uh, selecting candidates. I'd like to make a second point, is, and that is that an electoral system should satisfy two requirements. One is the representational aspect, and I think that a proportional system with a slightly lower threshold and a slower uh, uh, lower um, district magnitude, uh, higher district magnitude, so meaning an easier, um, uh, a lower threshold and easier time for parties to enter parliament would be a better choice. But the other criterion that it should satisfy is, um, let's say, what we can call it government stability. All right? So we don't want to end up in an electoral system where we don't really um, know what's going to happen, where we have sort of chaos that ensues after the election is over. Well, if you sort of look comparatively at proportional representation systems, um, on the one hand, it's indeed the case that we have proportional outcomes because voters have more choice to pick a political party. And I think one of the, the major benefits that voters will have is that they will be able to pick a party that they feel ideologically close to. They don't have to make a compromise. They don't have to pick a second best or third best candidate uh, and to elect that because they want to avoid another alternative. They can really sort of focus on the issues that they care about and pick out a party or a candidate from the party that they feel close to. And that is translated into seats in parliament. And I think that's important. There's empirical evidence that the proportion of voters who feel represented is significantly higher in PR systems compared to non-PR systems. So if that's the dimension that we care about, that feeling represented is an important improvement that we could do in Canada, then adoption of a PR system is certainly to be recommended. There will be more parties. There will be more parties in elections that run. There will be more parties that um, are likely to enter Parliament. But I think the particular proposal here is that the district magnitude, which is mainly responsible for how many seats are allocated to parties, is sufficiently large for an, a more proportional representation. But there are thresholds built into the system that will be high enough to keep out very small parties. The thresholds are not quite as high as um, in the previous three presentations, but I think they're high enough to keep uh, and to ensure that all the, the particular worries are addressed um, of a very fragmented parliament. So the final point here is, um, government stability and what, what this particular electoral system means um, for, for the kind of governments. Well, I would argue that single-party majorities certainly will be less likely, um, and that's probably a desirable outcome. 
Okay, so if, if you adopt that particular system, that is one of the uh, most likely out, uh, consequence. But I would argue that governments are likely to remain stable uh, in some fashion. Right? So um, we will either get more coalition uh, governments, or we'll get coalition governments, or more minority governments. But minority governments is actually something that Canadians have the experience with. And the, the current electoral system, even though it's usually hailed as a majoritarian Westminster-style system that produces clear majorities, here in Canada doesn't work well. It often produces minority governments already because of the multi-party nature of the country and a diverse society with inaccurate reflection um, of the uh, support for the parties in parliament. So minority governments already exist. Right? So I think that if you want to have minority governments or if minority governments is, is an outcome that is uh, uh, reasonable um, or to be expected, then I think a fair representation of partisan support in Canada in parliament is something that's certainly desirable. I also want to debunk some myths right, against, um, against uh, proportional representation or MMP. So some people say um, proportional representation leads to short-lived coalition governments. That's not true. Um, so if you look comparatively at um, majority coalition governments in other established democracies, they tend to last exactly as long as single-party uh, majority governments. Um, another uh, critique is that a constitutional amendment would be required to adopt the system. That's also not true in this particular version, so this could actually go through without a constitutional amendment because it would preserve the proportionate representation of the provinces in Parliament. Um, list MPs are not accountable in PR systems, meaning those that the party selects as candidates. Well, in this open list system, they will be fully accountable, and parties can actually make that choice. And finally, the point that was made um, in, by the previous speakers, that there seems to be the fear of small parties somehow uh, taking over parliament. And I think it's a little bit exaggerated in the way that was presented. I think there are a lot of uh, democracies that function very well with a fair representation with lots of parties um, in parliament. Um, it's not that small parties necessarily always enter um, into government, right? So the government formation process is separated from the election. We get the, the government formation process um, exposed. And I want to sort of flip the argument around, right? I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's always great that, uh, and, and, and sort of Peter framed it as a question, I think that's right, uh, that, all, that the all power should go to, to one party with, with just a, a minority of, of the vote share. Um, small parties in, in proportional represent, representation systems are often parties that pick up on new issues that are important in society. So sometimes new issues arise. The traditional established parties don't necessarily pick up on them um, in, in sort of a, a, a timely fashion. So often these parties do start as single-issue parties. Maybe they champion the environmental cause, right? and they sort of make this uh, part of their platform. And so they occupy an ideological niche. And if you really care about the environment, if that's what you think is really important, you can pick, that, for example, that particular party that, um, that chooses it, and that party actually gets representation. Right? So I think these voices should be represented in Parliament. And we know that the way coalitions function in parliamentary systems is that these small parties don't have, to, don't have an, uh, I would say, disproportional influence on, on the outcome. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, a lot of parties in uh, systems where coalitions are likely, and uh, Canada might move in that direction, already announce what kind of coalitions they would be willing to accept. So voters are actually, um, when they cast uh, a vote for a particular party, know if they cast a vote for, let's say, for the Greens, they're more likely to um, endorse a particular um, coalition, for example, with, with the Labour or, or NDP party. Right? So I think there is this, um, this idea that there might be a, a compromise stage that is actually beneficial. Right? So parties contest each other, and we have this, this notion of winning and losing that's really entrenched into the system here. 
You're either a winner or you're a loser. And if you win, you can govern the country for four years. And if you're a loser, you just have to wait and sit it out for four years. And I think the switching to PR sort of changes that logic, right? So there is a very contested, and it should be a very contested election. But there's this phase where parties do need to cooperate. And it might, be, it might lead to minority governments that are supportive of other parties. It might, meet to, to, it might lead to actual majority coalitions. And I think that um, a lot of countries have very good experiences with that. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, so I would like to conclude my presentation and root for MMP and ready uh, for all your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Oliver. So a uh, big thank you to all four presenters. So this concludes uh, our first round uh, of the debate, and we are now entering round two. And here, at this point, I'd like to remind you that this is the last time in this next round of our debate, the last time that you can submit your questions to Pigeonhole. Uh, and we are now actually trying to project the questions that have come in onto the screen during this next part of the debate. Again, you can upvote the questions that you like, and we will pick questions from this list for our third part. So now on to round two which comes in two parts. Uh, first, it is a debate uh, amongst our four members about the important question whether Canada should move towards proportionality. Okay, so that is the issue here in this round. What would be the advantages and what would be the disadvantages if Canada did adopt a more proportional system, and then we're going to debate after that, we're going to debate uh, the types of system that we could adopt. So for this part, we take eight minutes uh, for our debate, and so I like, uh, I think, to start with the people who have uh, presented the proportional system here to kind of push this argument a little bit farther, why it is so important for Canada to move towards proportionality, and then I'd like to ask the other two to chime in why it should not be important or why there are certain reasons that we shouldn't. Okay, so please. Do you want to go first? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Canada should more move towards a more proportional system. Why? Well, first off, uh, as was already noted, a uh, majority of uh, Canadians voted for the parties that are in support of electoral system change. And most recently, a poll was just released suggesting that, in fact, a majority of Canadians want the Liberals to continue down this road that they promised. They want them to keep the campaign promise. And let's remember what that promise was. 2015 will be the last election under first-past-the-post. Very simply, I believe that Canadians want change, and they want their voices to be heard in Parliament. Now, a lot of the other issues raised up here are important. They're about accountability, they're about effectiveness. Those are all very important aspects. But fundamentally, I believe that Canadians want more voices to be heard in Parliament, and that would, is what would happen under a more proportionate system. I want to make the same argument. Uh, I think there are many benefits. We have, we have proven experience from other countries, although uh, Peter sort of uh, you know, criticizes the fact that we shouldn't necessarily look at other countries or cross-national research for our conclusions. But the New Zealand case, for example, is an example of that, that clearly a country moved from a two-party Westminster-style majority and system to an MMP proportional system. I think the experience overall was good. There was a, another referendum. Um, so they 
uh, adopted the system by referendum. There was another referendum um, a few years later where the, the choice was um, confirmed. And so I think uh, people do need um, do need their representation. They do need that um, if, if, if the concern is indeed about um, feeling represented. Um, there is... Um, if in surveys, actually, there's a, no, if, no difference um, when um, people are asked whether it makes a difference uh, who is in power between small, coalition, small party coalitions, so two, two or three party coalitions, and uh, single party governments. So I think the threat that there uh, might be coalitions that uh, can agree or that uh, don't work, I think, is exaggerated. So I think the main benefit here from, from moving to PR is indeed that increased representation. Um, in particular in a diverse uh, country like Canada that already has this, uh, a relatively strong support uh, for small parties, which is probably muted due to the strategic incentives of the existing system where voters are essentially forced to pick a party uh, not in order to uh, waste a vote in the election. So I think uh, if the, the, the switch was made, we would have a, a more accurate um, translation of the, the votes into the seats. I guess I don't know what we're debating against here in the sense that, and this is, this is I don't mean to be uncharitable, I mean this is what always seems to happen when, when, I'm, when I'm debating people who are advocating for proportionality. They say two things which to me seem irreconcilable. On the one hand they say, no, there'll be a lot more voices in Parliament, you know, and new parties will be able to express things, there'll be niches, there'll be a better fit between seats and votes. Oh, but, you know, but don't worry. You know, we won't let in parties who get less than 5%. I mean, why not? Um, don't worry, you know, we're not going to have a large number of parties in, in cabinet, there's probably just going to be one or two. It would be really useful for us, I guess, to just know what your priors are. What, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to move to a system like New Zealand, which was majoritarian, where two parties routinely got on the order of 45% of the vote each, um, uh, and then there were other parties that tried to, tried to make their way but didn't win parliament, uh, and now is a country where the two biggest parties get about 45% of the vote? And they make some deals with these small parties to, to kind of give them a, a seat out, a cabinet seat outside of the cabinet, and you know, and, and really it is still a single party government for all intents and purposes. Or, are we going to move to a system which is, uh, which is much more like other uh, PR systems where there are, you know, parties of of governments of three and four parties? I just like to know which one it is because those are very different systems of government, and it's really useful, it's really enlightening for the debate if we know what the expectations are about. What kind of outcomes we'll get? If your response, though, is we don't really know, I don't know which one it's going to be. Uh, that gives me pause. Um, I would say that in theory, I'm in favor of more proportionality, uh, or in the translation between votes and seats. Actually, if you offer me a scenario where we have a current system but more proportion more proportionality between votes and seats, and one where there's less, of course, I would prefer the House of Commons to be a better mirror of the, what the electors, of the voters wants. But uh, what I'm saying is that there are other values and other things that I think matters more than this proportionality. So in that sense, I'm ready to make some compromises and to, to some extent, uh, limit the, uh, the proportionality aspect to it. My second point is about comparing with other countries and the argument that uh, all of you made about a lot of the, most of the world, democratic world actually use some sort of PR system. Maybe, but there's also a political culture aspect to it. And uh, in Canada, all the referendums, there was one in BC that was a bit more complicated, but still. But when you actually ask people to vote on a refer referendum on that issue, in Canada, but also in UK recently, people are kind of 
um, not interested in moving into a different system. So in theory, in a survey or in a poll, yes, there's some interest for these new shiny things that might actually solve a lot of problems. But in practice, it's not clear to me that um, proportionality is something that matters that much. And I would end on a sport analogy, which I think I know is a bad thing to do, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, in sport. No, unfortunately, uh, it's hockey, which is, I guess, a big problem for André. But, uh, you know, in, in, in the big tournaments, let's think of the Stanley Cup in, in, in North America, you don't need to score more goals than the other teams on, on the aggregate. What you need to do is to more win games. While in other systems, other countries, in soccer, for example, what matters is the differential between goal for and goal against. It's different cultures in sports, and it's different uh, logic that are used to, to decide who wins and who loses. And I don't think making the argument that most of the world use a proportional system is a good argument because uh, I think political cultures matters in that, in that, in that sense. Add or, or counter. Uh, no, Peter raises a really good point about you know do we know what we're expecting, and I, I think it's important to say that we can't know. And the reason we can't know is the same reason that Canada has as many parties as it does right now. That we can understand what has happened in other countries, we can understand what are the tendencies that occur under other systems, but we can't guarantee the outcome because Canada is a case in point where no one would have predicted. That being said, one thing we can guarantee under PR is that more representation would happen and that the outcome would be more proportionate than what we have right now. That's based on your definition of representation. You're viewing representation as the fact that there's a perfect match or a roughly perfect match between votes and seats. Let me give you an example. A Green Party wins 5% of the vote and they win a cabinet seat. And then their job and the cabinet seat they ask for is the environment. They have a hard time monitoring that party because of a moral hazard. And that party then engages in uh, implementing environmental policy, which is well outside of the mainstream. Or let me give you an example that people won't find objectionable because so there's a party that gets elected that has a, a, an anti-multicultural view, and they're given that portfolio. They're elected by 5% of people, but they're given 100% of power over that portfolio. Where's the representation of what they're doing is putting in place policies that reflect the preferences of 5% of the people rather than the broad majority? Is that representation? I, I can maybe say from, from we know from coalition research that that is actually not how coalitions work uh, for the most part. So it's not that um, ministers are policy dictators or parties are policy dictators in their uh, in their jurisdictions that they get in coalitions. Coalitions actually have very fine-grained mechanisms of control. Um, they lay out a program, a compromise ahead of time. They write it down as a coalition compromise or coalition treaty after the elections. Um, they uh, agree that they uh, abide by the particular pledges that they make. They are a compromise. Um, so it's not the case that extreme positions typically survive that process. Um, so, so I think you're. Why do those parties want those portfolios? Otherwise, they'd be indifferent. Well, they, they, they certainly want those portfolios because they, they think it's an important issue, right? But they don't necessarily can implement the particular policy that they uh, that they have uh, campaigned on in, in the election. So that's, I think, what coalition uh, research has shown. That at the end of the day, yes, parties would like to keep the portfolios that they think are important, but the policies that emerge are compromises that are known to the voters because parties have to and, and do uh, publish them um, after the elections before they take office. So your claim, just to understand it, is that and I know we're on zero time, but your claim is that when a coalition is formed between the Liberal Party, the Green Party, and something else, in fact, Green voters who thought they were getting representation in that cabinet really aren't going to get it. What they're going to get is a lot of water in their wine, and they're going to get policy that's actually very close to the, to the median policy preferred by the Liberal Party, not preferred by that small party. That's your argument? 
Well, it depends on where the status quo is, right? So yeah. it could, could be that the Green Party participation in the coalition government will move the status quo in a direction that um, is beneficial and better than, than uh, where it is currently. So it's all relative to, to, the, to the current discussion. Just and, and, I th and I think the, I think voters don't necessarily in, in systems with PR have the expectation that um, a particular party that they vote for are uh, then gaining that uh, seat in the, in the coalition. That party might actually be in opposition for four years, right? So the coalition process is something that is not um, predictable um, at the election stage. The parties will campaign and they will say that we would like to form a coalition which, with, but I don't think that that is something where we, the, the main key here is that we should separate the coalition formation and the government formation stage from the re representational stage. And moving to PR clearly improves the representational stage, and I agree with Laura, but I think the, the, what emerges afterwards, what kind of government emerges afterwards, that is a, a bargaining process among the political parties. Right? Oh. And, 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 and uh, it could be that some parties win actually majorities. That can happen in a PR system. Right? Germany, last election, the Christian Democrats almost won a majority because voter support was high enough. In Scotland, uh, the Scottish National Party won a majority. So there are rare sing situations with single-party majorities. So it's more likely to have coalitions. But which coalition emerges um, is um, not necessarily clear. Okay, so this concludes actually our first round of debate here uh, amongst uh, our presenters about this one important question about proportionality. Now we would like to move on to our second round and uh, we can continue some of this discussion in later rounds as well. So I would like to ask the two gentlemen who are defending the two types of majoritarian system to make clear to us why do you prefer and what is the advantage of your system vis-a-vis -vis the other majoritarian system? So please, uh, Marc-Andre and Peter. Well, if I may start um, in a sense that the alternative voting system has actually all the benefits of, of, uh, of uh, first-past-the-post, but is doing a bit better. So in that sense, for those of you who have followed some Economics 101, it's a Pareto Optimum where you, know, you improve the system to some extent. We could debate that, but still but you don't actually um, make uh, life worse for those who are a fan of a system where they have a local representative and where uh, there's a lot of accountability. And another benefit, I think, of, of, uh, of, of systems like the first past the post, but also the alternative vote relative to PR, but also um, in general, is that parties have a chance or could risk in a situation like that a near-death experience. And we have cases of parties in Canada who went through that, the conservative, progressive conservative party for sure, and the Liberal Party, to some extent, after the 2011 election. And that aspect where uh, this proportionality or this, this uh, bonus for major parties actually forces parties to actually really think about uh, uh, strategy and about representing the voters. While in more PR system, uh, parties can get lousy and, uh, because they know that whatever happens, they'll get 22, 23, 24% of the vote, and they'll be part of the bargaining uh, uh, game that will happen later on. So, in that extent, to, 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 to some extent, our system makes, uh, I think, uh, and I'm not sure I'm convinced for what I'm about to say, because I'm kind of thinking out loud here. But I think parties might actually might be better, more um, at representing people in our system than in, in, in more PR system. I mean, I think I agree with you know Mark Andre said he agreed with 99% of what I said, so I agree with 99% of what he said. But uh, you know, my my sense is the following: is that it's not clear to me that AV where we drop off the lowest candidate is optimal. This is going to get very technical and nerdy here for a second, but you can have a candidate in a three-party race who's third and is, in fact, the Condorcet winner, is preferred by a majority to the other two 
the other two options, and that's suboptimal if that if that candidate isn't winning. So there are other systems. Eric Maskin, the Nobel laureate for mechanism design, has a system of uh, taking all the possible pairwise comparisons and identifying a, a Condorcet winner, for example. It's slightly more complicated, but it's a it's a system that um, probably has some better properties. It lowers the incentives of strategic voting. I guess for me, my sense of this and this was, this was the nature of my testimony when I was in front of the committee, was that uh, I don't view AV as a major change to our, to our system. I view it as a, just a change in how we count votes and how they're expressed. I don't think it's a constitutional change. I think that um, given the very broad view that our current court has taken on quote-unquote constitutional architecture, I, I don't think anyone can say with confidence that, um, that uh, uh, what exactly is and is not constitutional particularly as we move to systems of more proportionality. I don't say that as a fear-mongering thing, but I think it's a consideration. Um, but I don't have any great objection with AV, except that I think it is slightly more complicated. I think it does require some strategy um, that is slightly more, slightly more complicated. And I'll tell you that I, there is a notion that parties will be more gentle with each other and, and politics will be more civil if we're in uh, a system with AV because everyone's trying to get along with everyone. I'm not actually, and this is maybe a, a point in favor of our PR friends because there you don't have to get along with other par parties at the election stage. I'm not actually convinced that parties should be nice to each other in some ways. I mean, I don't want something like we're seeing in America right now with a, with a proto-fascist kind of stomping around. But, uh, but I think politics is serious stuff, and I, I think that uh, parties should be very sharp and clear and definitive about their differences rather than trying to round off their edges. But don't you think that in an AV system, the, the, the different winners in the different district would have more legitimacy because they would have explicit support from uh, more voters? I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> That's <Okay>. disappointing. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. That was a winning point. So. Uh, Anyway, between, uh, we, let's move to the other group of uh, defenders here of the proportional system. Why should we prefer the two-list system, the MMP, to the SUP and other, uh, the other way around? So please defend your system vis-a-vis -vis the other proportional system. Should I start this time? You can start right. this time. Um, I think the, let's say, the, the standard uh, list uh, proportional representation system would take away something that Canadians are really familiar with, and that's, that's a constituency representation. So the, the local candidate in a, in a district, and I think the mixed member uh, system would, would maintain that. Um, and that's probably not problematic in, in an area like Montreal, but it might be particularly problematic in a very rural area, where the, 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 the districts by definition will be very large. Um, so I think that's, that's a point for, for a mixed member PR system where the outcome in the end is still proportional, um, but you do keep uh, something that the Canadians are familiar with and, and they, they like. Um, the other thing that um, I think is uh, uh, problematic is that even though it's, it's a PR system, and I think we should maybe mention that for the audience that's important to understand, uh, when we throw out the term proportional representation, it can mean anything. It can mean full proportionality, like in Israel and Netherlands, uh, or it can be highly disproportional in countries like Spain, right, where the district magnitude is relatively low. So we can design a, a proportional representation system to be very disproportional and very, very much like an F first-past-the-post system. That's no problem, right? We just do that with the district magnitude. And I think Laura's proposal moves a little bit too much in that direction. Having districts that are too small just means that it's extremely hard for uh, smaller parties, um, and by small parties, I don't even mean like parties like 
parties that only achieve 4, 5, 6% of the vote, but parties that achieve, let's say, 13, 14, 15% of the vote support uh, to enter Parliament with a seat. Uh, I think that, uh, that uh, could be lower. Okay. So it's interesting because the, the features that you think are going too far away are the reason I was agreeing to do this one today. Because I do think there are lots of parts of Canadian politics that we do need to think about. And I will concede that in smaller, uh, in smaller areas, sorry, in rural areas, we already have large ridings. Having more uh, bigger districts can be um, a challenge. I would concede that. However, I do think there are a lot of benefits to having um, some constraints on the system. Now, I've already said that we can't know for sure what's going to happen, and that's true. That also allows for Canadian society to change. But we do have this situation where we could ha know that all of our MPs are the same. And I will say the one reason I was clear that I didn't want to argue in favor of MMP was because there's two different types of members in the House. So, right, you know, you'd have some who are elected by constituents that were clearly chosen, and then you would have some that were chosen from this list that were given out their seats in a different way. Those are two separate votes, and they have different uh, motivations behind them, and I think it has the potential to create very different almost classes of MPs, and that's not something that we have in Parliament, and I think it would disrupt the way that our um, parties are working and that our governments are working. And so I'm not in favor of MMP for that reason. I mean, it also would, I think, have the tendency to create more parties than what I'm proposing, and I, I am concerned about the nationalization um, aspect of the political parties, so that's where I'm coming from. Um, maybe just one, one point on the two different types of MPs um, in MMP. So you have the ones that are directly elected in single-member districts, and you have ones that were proposed by the parties and then chosen in that regional list vote. Um, but if you look at the, the systems in, in terms of the behavior, um, for the most part, these um, MPs don't differ from each other in the way that they uh, work in Parliament, with one exception is that the district MPs have a slightly higher constituency um, connection in, in their work. So they do have um, the local office, and they have uh, uh, you know, more contacts with, with uh, constituents than the ones that were nominated by, um, by the lists. However, the particular proposal I made here is, is an open list. Now that forces um, those that were nominated by the party to actually be visible in their region that they're nominated in, because voters can actually select or deselect them on, on that list. And so I think that would alleviate some of the concerns that maybe these party list MPs that were nominated by parties don't really care about the, the, the region that they were nominated in um, because they could actually be punished if they um, don't make a name for themselves. And, and I think the personal vote seeking could, could address that. Right, just about that then. So, I mean, we know as the size of a list increases that people tend to have less differentiation in terms of uh, their relations with the constituency. So, uh, you know, having more than five names on the list can, can really break that into a, a different, uh, into a different level. And so I, I think there's a, an issue of the legitimacy or the basis for inclusion in government and, and voices being listened to that are different in these two, uh, with these two types of MPs. Just one, one sentence. I agree. I agree with that. <laughs> um, except that the list in the MMP would be exactly five MPs because that's the compensatory component. It's, it's um, two-thirds single-member district candidates, one-third. That's third. the Canadian aspect of uh, it. That's the Canadian okay. tailor-made aspect. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so we have to leave it at that. Um, so we are... Uh,
approaching this round uh, of our debate, and we are entering round three of our debate, which is really based on your questions and on your comments here on what you have heard tonight. So uh, what we are doing right now is we are going to our platform pigeonhole, and uh, we are uh, going through the questions that you've been posing uh, to us, and our curators have selected certain questions uh, that are either highly voted. For example, this one I see here has uh, 58 votes. Now, I don't know right at the top of my head here right now uh, of, of how many people who have read this question, but in any case, it seems to be a high vote. So let's focus on that question. So I will throw this out to our panel here. Do you believe the current electoral system increases the likelihood of strategic voting uh, and corrodes the foundational ideals of democratic process via anyone but ex-voting? Uh, so Mark Andre, or please. Um, well, yes, uh, our system is the one where strategic voting seems to be the most prevalent. We're usually think, talking about between eight and ten percent of the voters. Uh, that being said, is this a bad thing or a good thing? I don't know. I think in every aspect of our lives, we're, we're being strategic and tactical, and I don't see why it should be different when we cast a vote for a candidate or another. I, I, I think that quantity is a bit high, but I think that the reality is that if you're in a PR system, for example, you have the choice of saying, well, should I vote for the Greens, you know, and maybe move them from 5 to 6 percent, or should I vote for another party to get them over another arbitrary threshold to get them into cabinet, for example. So I think there's evidence, you know, I, in fact, I think the first paper you and I published with Andre showed substantial strategic voting in uh, New Zealand under an MMP system. But more generally, you know, uh, is, it, is, it really, is it really bad is it really a, a great offense that citizens might look at what other citizens are going to do, consider the preferences of other people, and then square up against those? You know, I mean, that happens a lot in life. And I don't think that compromise, and I don't think that, you know, sometimes putting a bit of water in your wine is actually a bad thing. Uh, I think that that's actually part of being an adult. So I don't, I don't actually view strategic voting as a normatively uh, bad thing, and I haven't heard a convincing argument that it is, actually. That's my opinion. <laughs> Anyone else on this question of strategic voting? I, I'd agree maybe that strategic voting is um, something that also occurs in um, mixed member proportional representation systems, for example, um, or PR systems to lift a particular party above a threshold. Um, so this coalition insurance uh, strategy. So I don't think the issue should be strategic voting, whether it's, uh, it's there or not. I think it exists in, in some fashion in, in all kinds of electoral systems. The issue is what happens uh, with the votes, and if a substantial number of the votes just don't translate into anything, I think that's a concern with the existing system. That's problematic. And so strategic voting actually leads uh, in PR system to a higher representation. Um, I think that's, uh, that's something that uh, there's a clear sort of evidence that that has a consequence as opposed to the vote, the, the vote being uh, wasted. Mm -hmm. I would actually agree. Okay. So let's move uh, to the next question. Um, so this is a question in French. Uh, I also uh, had an agreement uh, by André to uh, come and translate for those uh, who don't understand French. Is the civil society in Canada, uh, would it accept a new system if a referendum was organized? That's interesting. <laughs> so will, would civil society will, would be willing to accept a new system if there were a referendum? You wanna... I, I mean, I, uh, 
I, I, I think, I guess, I guess I'm on the record that, I, that I'm in favor of a referendum, and there are really two reasons why. Um, one is that uh, I don't think even all party consensus is sufficient to ensure that parties are disinterested in the system that they're choosing. So imagine the parties that are considering this right now propose a system which sort of says, we'll have a bit more proportionality, and we'll really just have a system where our three kind of big parties trade government forever, and other parties can't break in. They could set up a system like that in theory, and they could all say we all support it. But I think that there's self-interest involved, and I think that we may want to make sure that there is a disinterested consideration. I think the best method would have been a citizen's assembly followed by a referendum, but the absence of one doesn't necessitate um, the absence of another. I guess the final thing is that I, I, I just really, uh, and you guys can respond to this, but I got really tired of people um, saying that voters were, 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 were clever enough to be able to confer a mandate for electoral reform through parties and all the din of an election and all the noise and all the arguing, all the other issues. They were somehow able to signal that, that, that mandate. But if you ask them in a referendum, no way, man. They can't handle it. You know, if you ask them straight up, voters can't do it. They'll just get pushed around, they'll get manipulated. That's, those two views of voters I find just uh, irreconcilable. So I just, on kind of uh, sort of uh, wanting to take the side of people who, uh, uh, not take the side of people who say that other people are dumb, I decided that a referendum seems like a good idea. Um, Want to respond? To we'll yeah, I, I mean, I actually don't think it's a great idea to have a referendum. Um, only because I think the issues of electoral systems are very complex. So I should actually clarify. I'm not in favor of a referendum to choose the system. I'm in favor of a referendum to confirm the system. Um, now, New Zealand did both, but it's what they did after. And it was found that they wanted to stick with the MMP system they had chosen. And the reason for this is that, as we've said, we don't really know exactly what would happen. And it's kind of the same thing that we use all the time, right? There's this fear of the unknown. And when you don't know for concrete sure, that really does open up the entire process to manipulation of information. That doesn't mean voters are stupid. What it means is that the information campaigns become so fundamentally important, that, and if they don't actually mirror what might happen, then that has real implications for the vote. On the other hand, giving Canadians an opportunity to vote under a different system, that political parties, and I do agree that they would have their own interests at heart, have come to an agreement upon, would give voters a real opportunity to say, okay, do we like this new system or do we like what we had before? But I will say that the tendency of referenda, not always, but sometimes, to stick with the status quo suggests to me that it's not the best choice when we're having such a complex issue um, moving forward. So, so your claim is that, that the fact that people have chosen against it is evidence that it's not the method we should use. That's, that, that's, that's the essence of what you just said. Because people made a choice that you don't like, it's not the method we should use. No. Okay. You're inferring what? That, that you're My inferring point that is are... that I think you should have an opportunity to see what a system means. That I mean, it's the same thing as anything you do, right? You know, it, it's with my kids. When they say they don't want a vegetable, I said, have you tried it before? They say, no, I don't like it. I said, well, try it first and then tell me you don't like it. I'll accept that. But I have a much harder time with the a priori. I don't like it. I only eat green vegetables or whatever it is because you haven't tried it yet. So why don't we, why don't we just randomly select governments every second election? I'm serious. No, no, by this logic, I don't know what an NDP government would do. Let's just give them a shot. Let's give them a shot and we'll have a confirming referendum, right? I mean, what, what, is so, what is so demanding to say, I want politicians to convince voters that they ought to, in the majority on a simple up or down, say, I'm in support of the system or not. I don't think these systems are, are overly complex. 
I think people have other things going on uh, in their lives. I agree with that. But I think that, uh, I think that if it's true that voters gave that mandate to the government, if it's true that 65% really want electoral reform and that's a meaningful response to a public opinion poll, and if it's true that this committee is going through all the work that it's going through to come to a deliberated choice, I think that if there is that level of support of the population, that there can be a change and there, and there can be a positive referendum, as there was in New Zealand at the front end and at the back end. Okay, so one last comment and yeah. then we move on. Um, I tend to, again, to agree with Peter that a referendum would be a good idea, though there are two uh, aspects to it that I think could be problematic. First of all, we're framing this because if it's a referendum, it's probably between two options, the status quo and something else. Why not three, four, five? Why not have a ranked ballot on, on the referendum? Like, <laughs> it's still framing, even though it's a referendum. And, my, and, my, and the second point is, what if, I'll give like an example like that. What if most provinces are in favor of a change, but Quebec is against it? Have we thought about that? Can we change a system if, it's, if the new version is very unpopular in some parts of the country? Well, how would you solve that problem? Because it happened before in referendums. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Okay, wow. Um, that is uh, an issue we cannot solve here on the spot, but a uh, nice try. Um, we will move uh, to another important question uh, that uh, 51 votes uh, we, we can see on this question, and it was cast by Benjamin Forrest. Uh, what are the relative effects of each system on the election of women, visible minorities, and members of other underrepresented groups. So we've discussed this a little bit, but I think we could be more explicit about the research findings here in our answers on whether each of these systems really increases or does not increase uh, the inclusion of these minority groups. Uh, do you want? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Um, so, in terms of the different systems, I mean, I think the point has been made. I think several of us have made it in public before that it's really about who the candidates are, not about the voters being against um, voting for women or for visible minorities. And so, it is all about the candidates. That being said, we have to be clear about the incentives that parties would have to put uh, candidates that are women or visible minorities forward. And part of this involves the real barriers that we know to getting non-white male candidates to run. Right? There are real barriers in society, and parties have to make special efforts at recruitment in order to get um, these groups to have the equal incentives to move forward. I mean, we can talk about the research that says all the reasons that women don't get involved historically, and even today, when you know, we, we raise our, our girls to say they can be anything they want, but there are still some inequalities that we need to confront. So it's about the incentives for parties, and I think open list systems are the best ones that are going to put front and center right out there exactly what the parties are putting forward. And like I said in my comments, I really do think think the parties would be disadvantaged if they didn't pay attention to diversity, and so I think that those would be the best systems. Okay, so I, I see already on your faces that you want to respond to this. Uh, I fully agree. With you agree. Okay. Yay. Uh, Peter, <laughs> but I saw on your face. Oh, no, I think the evidence is that, uh, that in, in countries that have more uh, proportional systems, there are more women elected. There are uh, often more visible minorities elected. Um, I think there is a tension between open lists and, 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 and targeting groups because because you do have to, you know, if you have an open list, then people can make discriminatory choices. If you have a closed list where you zipper man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, then we just go down the list. So there's a tension there. Um, and I think that... I think 
think it's important that we have more women in Parliament. I think it's important that we have more visible minorities and more Aboriginals. We actually do pretty well with, against the baseline of our population on the last two things. Leslie Seidel's made that point really well, among others. We don't have enough women in Parliament, um, and I think that's not good. And I think that uh, changing an electoral system to get more women uh, when there are other ways we could do it is, uh, is itself uh, uh, not recommended. It just seems like a major change for what's an important good, but in some ways a, a second-order good. And I just note again that that the government uh, voted down legislation yesterday that would have uh, only really refunded the finance of, of 100, what, what does it work out to, 169 women and 169 men, uh, male candidates uh, uh, and female candidates. It basically said that it wasn't uh, interested in a bill that, that, would, that would encourage parties to, to run equal numbers of men and women through campaign finance. So square those things up in your head. But my view of it is that we can make changes in our existing system without having to make fundamental change. Okay. Mark Andrew, you had your... uh, I would say that it's actually, if there's one thing that I feel uh, is a big advantage of PR is the ability to correct uh, the underrepresentation of women and other groups, that's for sure, <clears throat> and that would be the easiest solution. There are other solutions in our current system, but that would definitely be it. However, there's still, for me, some issues about um, who are underrepresented, so women, the, um, the, uh, ethnic minorities. What about people who are not college educated? What about people who are not from political dynasties. What about, like when you start thinking about those who are underrepresented, we have to make choices about who needs uh, a boost in representation and that's a very difficult question that we haven't talk, uh, thought about enough as a, as a society. One quick point, uh, Peter mentioned the uh, open lists and potential discriminatory effects. Um, I think it's Sweden where it works exactly the other way around. With an open list, uh, women get bumped up through the open list. Um, so the effect is actually exactly the reverse, so there's a positive yeah. effect. I mean, New Zealand case is informative, right, in that it hasn't suddenly produced a parliament of half women. I mean, it's actually the effect there was pretty modest on the number of women elected. I thought that was pretty informative, but I don't know the particulars of that case enough. I only know that increase in women was about 5% of the legislature. Okay, so we have lots and lots of questions from the audience. Our time is limited. Uh, so I suggest we move on uh, to another question. Do we still have some time? Uh, so this comes from Colin Scott. I know this guy. Should be worried about the increased, uh, should we be worried about the increased cognitive demands placed on voters and the implications for decision making resulting from more complicated ballots? <laughs> I would say no, uh, as uh, someone Jan said, in part because, um, well, first of all, I think uh, it's not that complicated to vote. The problem with all of the systems that have been presented here, I would say three of the four, is they're very difficult to explain, actually. But like the voting, casting a vote is actually not that complicated, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. Is that the if you are, agreement? If you're a Scottish voter, you vote uh, in one ele electoral system in local elections, uh, STV, you, you vote um, MMP or the additional member system in your uh, Scottish elections. You vote uh, still in the uh, UK general election um, under first past the post system. And if you vote for the European Parliament elections, you vote under a, a list PR system. And I don't think Scottish voters are necessarily concerned that they have to vote in four different systems and they can reasonably do that. Similarly, like in Germany, if you vote for a state election, you vote under one electoral system. If you vote for the national uh, election, you vote under the MMP. If you vote under the European Parliament election, you vote for a closed list, uh, pure closed list. I don't think there is a, uh, uh, an issue with that. So, 
maybe what is uh, implied in the question is also if you, if you have to do the ranking of candidates, you need to know a lot about the different alternatives out there, which is not necessarily what people always do. So they are not always informed about the alternatives. So it would actually pose some sort of, uh, you know, issue for voters to, to reinform themselves. So, so is in, that an issue or not? In MMP, all right, the first component is still the same as before. So uh, I wouldn't say anything changes. The second component, you can just choose a party if you want. And parties campaign with their platforms already now, today. So anybody who would like to pick a party can simply do that and not have to inform themselves about a particular candidate. I would say that uh, for alternative vote, in Australia, you need to rank all the candidates. And I think that's a very, very bad idea. I would favor a system where you can rank, you can put one preference up to the whole list if you want. But ranking everyone is obviously extremely difficult. Um, but there are solutions to that that are quite easy to implement. I think that, I mean, the cognitive difficulty is an understanding, and this, is, this, is, this obtains in every system, understanding what the implication of your vote is, which is to say, and that's a strategic question, but if I vote for this party versus that party, what's the likely, what's the likely outcome? That's cognitively difficult in, in most nearly every system. I think it's more difficult in systems like Sven's suggested where there's an election and then parties set about uh, forming governments after that. But no, I don't think any of these things are complicated, just as I don't think a yes or no on a referendum is complicated. They're all achievable. One other thing would be that Canadians have voted in the past using different systems, so we have shown that we can do this. It's not an issue. Okay. So do we have time for one more question before we go on to the vote? So, lesquels de ces mots de scrutine? Which one of these systems will encourage participation most from citizens in Canada? Translation here. And uh, it is about the participation, the electoral participation of citizens, uh, which of the systems promotes most of it. And so this is also, I think, a question that has been really deeply researched. Uh, we have a lot of research on this question, so I really like you to make some references here uh, to the research that we have in hand. So uh, Andre Blais' submission to the Electoral Reform Committee suggested that the the cross-national boost that one gets, uh, it's a cross-national estimate, looks at every country that has elections and looks at their electoral system and controls for all these other things. He suggests that the boost in turnout is about three and a half percentage points. Uh, my, my own reading is that turnout has gone down in New Zealand since they changed the new system. I think this is one of these things where uh, no one knows the answer. Realistically, I think that there's so much unobserved heterogeneity that you can't, you can't make a causal estimate, and we should be honest about that. I, I would Do others have the same view, or...? Incentives that uh, personal vote systems, uh, which does include right all of these ones, um, are, are clear that they do encourage campaigning. And I would say that open list systems, because they have intra-party um, competition, might increase that amount of activity with the the public, and that would increase, I think, um, citizens' involvement or interest in their campaigns and the elections. I would say that we should not uh, pick an electoral system based on uh, that criteria. I think there are other ways to improve turnout, compulsory voting, make turnout uh, records public. I think uh, picking an electoral system based on that, I think, is, is misleading. Okay. Do we leave it at that? Okay. Uh, do we have time for one more question? Oh, we do. Okay. So uh, is there another question that uh, we can use? Yes. Um, in fact, this also got... Uh, a number of votes from anonymous uh, and some other votes. In SUP, so uh, here we have a specialist, would the four MPs in each riding have to collaborate to serve their constituents? Which MP would a constituent go to? How would this work when they come from different parties? 
So my expectation would be that they would go to the one they voted for. Um, but there would be not really a compromise issue. I mean, there would be simply more people that were responsible for serving the constituents in an area, which, I mean, in many ways is, is a benefit, right? So that if you do have four different MPs that could all want to earn your vote in the future, there should be more people vying to uh, serve your needs. I think that's exactly one argument for mixed member proportional representation, that it's really clear who you have to go to, plus the district is much smaller than the particular region um, that is covered by, by this proposal. So I think that, that is indeed one, one big difference. Do you want to comment on this point, just in general, that it's a problem that people don't know who to go to? Other no, no, I mean, I think, you'd have to, I think the devil would be in the details. The issue is that you have constituencies in our country, Thunder Bay, Atacokan, would take you about a day to drive across, not sure, 12 hours. It's a big constituency. And if you add on four more to that, then you get to a place where just the, the, the particularities of our country, it's a big, empty place uh, where people are sparsely uh, spread out over it, means that it may be, you know, the kind of personal time that people get with their MP may be de depleted, but there is email and that sort of thing. But I think there are, there'd be practical considerations about, about that, and then there would be issues about coordination for voters. Yeah. Okay, I think uh, this concludes uh, this part of the debate. I think what we can do is, I, I assume there are many more questions that we were not able to ask here in this room. So what we can maybe do and promise is that we will take some of these questions and we'll put the answers on our website of the Center for the Study of Democratic Citizenship. You have, uh, I think, the web address, and so we will uh, send a link to all the email addresses that we have received from you when you registered and we will give you some of the answers. So that's at least a promise I'm making here. Um, and somebody will come up with the answers. Uh, <laughs> So now we are actually getting ready for our vote. And this is a vote that is uh, coming from our room here. And it's also coming from the, the, all the participants that uh, uh, kind of viewed this uh, session uh, across Canada. Um, and so what I would like you to do is to kind of get rid of all your priors, all your prior preferences that you had. And we know from Minister Monson question that some of you did have very strong preferences when you came into this room, but leave these preferences behind now. We like to know from you what you think based on what you heard today from, from the debaters, from the discussions. What is the system that you think is preferable in the Canadian context? And so this is the question that we move to. It comes also in two parts. So the first part is your first preference. And in the second question, we will ask you about your second preference. But again, try to integrate things that you heard tonight in your answer, and then we will look at what you have decided. Um, so uh, let's put up the question. Okay, so here you see the exact wording of the first question. Question wording always matters, uh, as our research shows. So of the four voting systems presented this evening, which is your first choice for Canada, I think we should add. Um, so which is your first choice for Canada? <coughs> Sorry. 
So for those of you who don't have a phone handy, again, we have the tablets that you can use. Uh, people walking around with the tablets. Uh, oh, it doesn't work? Ah, uh, okay. Um, so there are no tablets. <laughs> uh, that was a nice idea. Um, so uh, we see the live vote. We are not cutting off. You're still voting, okay? So uh, still things can change. Um, and so we are seeing the votes coming in. So we give this a minute uh, so everyone can vote. to be a, a first choice um, amongst uh, the audience here and the audience uh, at university campuses in Canada and whoever watched our debate for the mixed member proportional system, which I guess would be the most radical change from the current system from all the four. I don't think it's the most radical. <laughs> <laughs> we are still debating that. <laughs> okay. Um, and the second runner-up is the alternative vote, okay? And um, I guess the people who came to our forum, so obviously, as you know, this is not a representative sample of Canadians, right? So we cannot make this conclusion, so we cannot read this in the newspaper tomorrow that this is the decision of Canadians. It is a very select sample. For those of you who came here, you are more interested in change than keeping the system. Sorry, Peter, but it's not personal. <laughs> oh, no, are you trying to console me? <laughs> yeah. I, I just uh, did want to say that if we had four preferences, it's possible that EV would actually end up first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Nice try, nice try. Okay, so we go to our second vote. So, and now you have to change your vote. You cannot keep on voting for the same system. You have to change your vote now. So which is your second choice? I guess you were excluded from voting, so. <laughs> so there's also statistical phenomenon here that uh, since uh, it was a large group voting for the mixed member proportional, cannot be the system, uh, the, the most chosen system here. Um, so we see how that will pan out. We give it a minute. So there seems to be some competition here between the alternative vote and the small district open list proportional system. Um, we get almost an even 
support here as a second choice. Um, so again, it's a sign that this group wants change. And uh, so uh, I think that really concludes, in a way, our session. Are there any final comments uh, from the presenters? <laughs> you are accepting uh, the choices here, and uh, that's it. So I, I think that uh, this was an attempt to discuss four different options of electoral systems. I hope it was a useful exercise. I hope it was helpful for receiving better knowledge about these systems and making more informed choices. I'd like to thank a lot of people here who have helped to make this event work. I think it was a fabulous event. First of all, I want to thank Andre Blay for organizing and initiating this event. So thank you, Andre. I'd like to thank our four presenters who uh, had to go through all kinds of pressures and, and concerns here on the stage. Uh, thank you very much for being so forceful in presenting your viewpoints.